Yeah, but you you might have often seen me as just Michelle Sharidi. Wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, no, I had a few problems. My real name is Matthew, but people call me Monty because of a comedy uh, group called Monty Python. And sometimes, yeah, if I'm hoping as Monty, uh, I can't get anywhere. You know, I have to try and get my passport to get to. Otherwise, they just don't believe believe I am who I say that I am. Yeah, exactly. Alrighty, so uh, are we ready to rock and roll? Yeah, absolutely. Let's go. Italian Wine Podcast. Chin Chin with Italian Wine People. Hello, this is the Italian Wine Podcast. My name is Monty Wood and my guest today is Michelle Ceruti Cowell, Master of Wine. Did I say that right? You did. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, welcome. Thank you. So you became became a Master of Wine in 2015, and you are, I think, a dual Italian-Canadian citizen. How did that come about? Yes, I am. Canadian-Italian living in the UK. So, um, well, Monty, how does one ever leave their home? Due to love, what can I say? So... Uh, living in Canada and my husband, we've always loved traveling uh, overseas and have spent a lot of time in Europe, particularly Italy. And when the opportunity arose for him to come and do a postgraduate degree in London, uh, we jumped at it and and we stayed. We, we've essentially stayed here. So during that process, as opposed to getting... Um, uh, my citizenship in England, I, I because I, I have a, a Italian heritage, I got my Italian passport instead. So, so that's why I have both. I have indefinite leave to remain to live here, but I, I retain my Canadian and my Italian citizenship. Where were your Italian family from? Which part of Italy? So the very north, I say to people, uh, Alto Pimonte. So he, the, the village is actually Fomenta, which most people don't know. It's all probably, I believe it's only less than 200 residents. It's around 700 meters uh, in the Alps, but right on the border of Switzerland. So uh, if, if you know Laga Maggiore on the west side, Canobio is the closest town. And you literally hang a left and drive up in the mountains, and uh, and uh, there you are. That's where my family's been for hundreds and hundreds of years. So it's funny. That's that's kind of a scene. It's obviously a luminous but quite chilly place. Um, and you live in Canada. We always associate um, Canadians with very very warm hearted people in a very cold country. Uh, so you're obviously not not phased about cold then. Not particularly, although one does get used to when you're not when you're not in sort of minus five to minus ten for long periods of time anymore. One one does feel it a little bit more, I would say. But uh, but yeah, we're you know my my heritage is mountain people, so I, I, I do I do say that. So we, we we can handle the cold a little bit better, I guess. So you went to university in Canada and you majored. In business, uh, was it the business or business of wine, or was it both? Uh, no, it was just it was just business. I had a specialty in sort of political science and business when I when I went to university. So, in in Canada, it has changed now. But when I went to university in Canada, and obviously the wine industry there, as you know, very different from province to province. You know, the wine wasn't it wasn't something that one went to as as a job as a career. Uh, and I'm happy to say that has changed. So it really wasn't an option for me until I until I moved away. And and you know you come to a place like uh, anywhere in Europe or, or England where I am now, and, and and there's just so many different career avenues. And that was so so limited in Canada at the time. So you know going into the wine business wasn't really something that uh, uh, really was an opportunity for me, unfortunately. 
Okay, so I mean, where did that ambition to work in wine come from then? Yeah, it's it's a strange thing. I, I think being, and you would understand this, being Italian, you know, my earliest memories are, are you know, my grandfather having a glass of wine at lunch, having a glass of wine at dinner, you know, very Italian, never overly indulged, but that was their, 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 their beverage of choice to consume. You know, Santa Claus had a glass of wine and cookies. And when you grow up um, in the late 70s in Ontario, that was seen as extremely unusual and strange. You know, nobody Santa Claus had that. And mine had a glass of red wine and cookies. So wine has sort of been in my life and around my life in that sort of food and wine culture for a very, very long time. And doing courses uh, in Canada really sparked my interest. So when I did move overseas, the opportunity came to do classes and switch careers. And I absolutely jumped at it. It, it, it was something that I just, you know, if you view that opportunity to switch something and to do something different in your life, um, this was it. And I jumped at it and took it. Because obviously you're quite a studious person. I mean, you know, you're doing the political science and you seem like you obviously you're sort of multitasking um, in terms of in terms of your interests, you know, politics and wine. Um, where does that kernel of um, intellectual hunger come from? I think some people may may doubt that maybe I was that academic, but you know, I think when you have a passion for a topic, and I had such a huge desire to learn so much more about wine once you once I found it a little bit of it and started experiencing, and this did happen in Canada when I took courses. In Canada, I all I wanted to do was learn more, and all I the first thing I did, and I think people thought it was very strange when I moved overseas, as opposed to getting, you know, qualifications for uh, a, a different job here. The first thing I did is actually went to the wine school and signed up for wine courses. So I really had a huge desire to learn more. The topic just fascinated me, and maybe because I was from Canada, maybe at that time Niagara was just starting in its infancy to become a little bit more interesting and different, maybe because that opportunity wasn't there for me, um, that when I had the opportunity, and of course in England, as you know, it's more on the business side, and that sort of suited my background, the business side, um, you know, that was, I just went headlong into it and loved the study of it, probably more than I love studying business and politics. When did you land in the UK? When did you when did you decide that you were going to make your to, life? Yeah, to so late two thousand. So I took my first course in two thousand and one. Um, not long after, sort of really coming permanently, I went back and forth uh, in in the year of two thousand. And within weeks of landing permanently, I, I took the first level at WSCT. I went straight to the wine school so, and, and, and took that and just really continued on. I, you know, I took at that point, there was no level one. So I took level two, um, went afterwards to level three. I was sort of still looking for a job. Um, just really to pay the bills, as you know, living in London. And, you know, 9-11 happened and the opportunities were minimal. And so I went into the full time, which was the diploma, the level of diploma, and and just kind of took off from there. Why was it hard for you to get a job? Is it because you were not British or was it because you were a female or because you had a, a quirk for one? No, I think... Yeah, no, I, I think at that time I was I was looking more on the, the consulting end of it. So consulting on the business side end of it, which was my background. And 
Um, and I actually had contracts. I did. I was about to sign. They ha I had two opportunities and two contracts. And if, if you remember that time when line 11 happened, the world was a little bit, we had a bit of a tech crisis and um, they didn't go ahead and sign the contracts. They just didn't know financially and they weren't ready to sort of hire. So I was then in a lull and, and instead of sort of sitting around in that lull, I just, I just said, well, I'll just, I'll just continue with mine. I'll, I'll, I'll forget about this and I'll see if, if the world changes and I'll hop into full-time in wine and I'll go switch into that and see what job I can get in wine. So that, that, that's, that, that's, it became a very quick, it became a very quick decision actually to, to do that. So you went from um, from studying wine to teaching it at the the Wine and Spirit Education Trust, and that was from two, about two thousand and four. Yeah, I did. I I did a little bit at a local um, at um, uh, Westminster has the local council has sort of. Uh, uh, programs that you can do for people that are sort of retraining restaurant hospitality that type of thing so I did start uh, doing a little bit while I was doing my diploma in 2002 2003 and as soon as I got my diploma uh, then went to WSET to see if they wanted me to work as well and just really build my career from those little pieces upwards so I mean were you I mean did you, did you sort of get nervous about that kind of thing that you know from from studying to actually being the teacher uh, not just obviously um the westminster thing but also you know teaching for the wset um do you, do you get nervous about that or are you just totally not phased um no i think look i think you you i think it depends what level i think nowadays less so but certainly in the beginning i would just you know go over the syllabus and review it and go over the books you just you you wanted to make sure you knew what you were talking about if somebody asked you questions and there's you know there's always going to be somebody in the audience who knows as much as you or sometimes even more than you about a particular topic so yeah i was nervous yeah i think that 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 took a that took quite a few years i think for me to gain you know the total confidence and i must say you know teaching even teaching the highest level now a diploma i mean we've got such amazing students with great knowledge you know it, it as opposed to making me nervous it actually excites me because i have to make sure i'm on the ball and i have to make sure i do constantly review and i do keep up with everything because you know students students know a lot they you know they they, they know a lot so it's uh now for me i enjoy it i absolutely enjoy being you know, being, um, you know, having, having, having to have that knowledge and, and having to bone up on it and having to constantly study it. I think it's great. Are there any particular regions you particularly like um, talking about and any particular Italian ones? Well, it, Italy is my, that, that, that is my specialty. Now at, at, you know, at some level when you lecture, you need to have a really broad knowledge. So if I'm teaching the lower levels, I have to have a very, very good knowledge of, of all the areas around the world. Um, but when you get into the diploma level, you do have areas of expertise and, and, and that would be mine for Italy. I mean, picking a region in Italy, gosh, that, that's, that's hard, Monty. Um, you know, I mean, there's all, there's all kinds of wines and all kinds of regions, probably the South. I think the South is mu the much more interesting region. I mean, gosh, as you know, there's, there's new grapes that people are discovering and finding all the time and, you know, all kinds of different styles coming out of the South these days. Um, so that probably is more from an interest point of view. I think that's interesting. I love to see things that are revived, 
you know, if you take a look at what Verdicchio has done and sort of the revival of what I think is one of the more underrated grapes around, I think that's really, really interesting. There's some stuff in the central that's really, really interesting too. That's, you know, there's stuff I love to drink and then there's stuff that's really, really interesting. So there, there's some stuff in central Italy that's going on. That's really, that's really interesting too. So, but yeah, I mean, you know, hard to pick, hard to pick in Italy. My spies tell me that you were recently in Manchester uh, giving a seminar. What was the topic of this particular lecture? So that was the Americas. So that was, uh, so that's my, that would probably be one of my other specialties be the Americas. So that was, uh, if I remember, California, I uh, had a few hours, not a few hours, probably four hours teaching California, and then Oregon, Washington State, Canada. So that's what I was there teaching, the Americas, which is also interesting. How would you describe your teaching style? Um, I, I would like to think that I'm pretty straightforward. I think most of the students would think that I'm sort of pretty pretty straightforward. Um, I, I feel very strongly there's there's a difference between uh, teaching and and uh, and what I would call entertaining. And I think teaching, you need to understand the syllabus. You need to be pretty clear. You need to be pretty straightforward with students. I'm pretty honest with students. If I don't know something or understand something, I can find them the information. Um, and, and, you know, I think, I think entertaining is one thing you can use to make it interesting, but as long as it needs to be relevant for the topic. At the end of the day, students need to write an exam. They're there to write an exam. So there's a real difference between just doing sort of a fun little consumer you know, tasting as opposed to what I call, you know, doing sort of real, real lecturing. So you're not only um, are you a master of wine, but you are on the, you're a member of the Institute's education committee, which sounds terribly sort of terrifying. <laughs> um, what, what, does, what does that involve? I mean, this is kind of like not only the MWs, this is the MWs of the MWs, isn't it? Yeah. The Institute of Masters of Wine is a little bit different than something like, uh, WSET. WSET is a school. There's a syllabus. There's courses. You know, these are they've got qualifications with the courses. The Institute of Masters of Wine it, it is not like that. So it's very much a self-study program. We're pretty open, pretty clear about that. So the education committee is all about supporting the students on their journey, supporting them through that uh, that process that they're going to do. So uh, we have. We offer four course days, and then all students have to go to a seminar. So some some seminar around the world, you know, whether it's it's a four or five day seminar around the world. So the education committee is really uh, there's different rules on it. It's it's looking at it's that are topics relevant, are theoretical topics are wines relevant? You know, there's classical wine regions, but there's some interesting different things going on in the world. So are are these course days and seminars covering that? Uh, we often we what, big part of what we do is we set up sort of mock tastings for them and mock exams for them and we bring in MWs to mark them to give them advice to go through that with them. Uh, we offer sort of more um, uh, from the theory side. It's more seminars and lectures. We'll do that as well. Uh, I think one of the bigger things, and we've started looking at this a couple of years ago, is more distance learning and doing a few things on distance learning. And I was doing a bit of that. So we we're doing more dry tasting notes and reviewing that, doing Zoom. So that's why I'm quite comfortable using Zoom because I've been doing it for a few years. And you can, as you can imagine, with COVID, you know, now distance learning is completely ramping up as we've got students that are sort of locked in certain countries. So that's kind of the things that we do. It's, I don't think it's less, it's, 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 it's less daunting than maybe it sounds, but that, that's the type of things that we look at from, from an educational point. 
You just did you use the term dry tasting? Yeah. So what's yeah. that? So instead of having wines in front of you, it would be so uh, we would set up something, you know, four wines or often a question would involve maybe three wines or four wines. So it is actually giving them the wines and giving them the technical details of the wines. So you know what they are. So it's a dry tasting. It's open. You know what they are. And it's not actually tasting the wines. It's just writing your note or answering the questions. You know what the wines are. Let's formulate what a note would look like, what an answer would look like, what language would you use. Uh, and I think that that's something that a lot of students, whether you're a diploma or whether you're an MW student, can do a lot more of, to be honest. You can sit there and you can write up. You can you can sit there and say, you know, let's talk about Chianti Classico uh, 2014. Vintage, you know, 90% Sangiovese. So you should have an idea what that's going to taste like. So if you had a basic Chianti, a Chianti Classico, and let's say you had a Grand Selezione in front of you, let's say those are your three wines and a dry tasting, we would give you the technical notes and then we would pose questions, you know, uh, what's the common grape and why? And, um, you know, what, you know, compare the quality, compare and contrast the quality of these, these three wines. So it would be, it would be something like that. So you don't actually need the wines in front of you. You can get them, but you don't actually need the wines in front of you to be able to formulate a note like that. So that's what we would call a dry tasting. That's very interesting. I've never heard of that before, to be honest. Um, but it's, um, I think it, it seems like a very good idea that you get into a sort of rhythm uh, or a framework of organize, first of all, organizing your tasting note, uh, and then obviously the knowledge um, locker behind that. And, uh, and I, think, um, I think that's a really good idea. Yeah, it, it is about that. It's formulating your thoughts and it's formulating reasoning and arguments. Nothing can take the place out of blind tasting, but there's lots you can do without wines in front of you, um, you know, just sort of, you know, looking at maybe old exam wines. And, and you can look at old exam wines and you can actually write the question just knowing what they are. And, and that's that's what it's all about. It's, it's extremely helpful, actually. So you, you, your Master of Wine uh, dissertation was uh, explored the impacts of Conegliano Valdomiadene, Prosecco Superiore, upgrading from DOC to DOCG. Um, and you said that this was quite a relevant issue. Is it still relevant today? I do think it's a relevant issue. Um, so I took a look at that. Uh, I looked at it from 2009, which was the year before the upgrade, to 2014. So over a five-year period, one year before, four, year, four years afterwards, and really took a quantitative and qualitative analysis on the impact of producers um, as well as the UK market. I think it is relevant today. And I think it's relevant, as you and I both know, there's so many regions who think, you know, the Holy Grail and the answer to their region is to upgrade. And it may be the case, but there are impacts of upgrading, uh, you know, and it, it was interesting to look at what those impacts were. Did, you know, what were the reasons that they wanted to upgrade? Uh, did they meet, did they achieve those reasons? You know, what do they need to do going forward? And out of this you know, most of the times when you do an upgrade, there's going to be a DOC and there's going to be a DOCG. And, and you know, how are those two now going to be placed in your market? Should they be both be in a supermarket with placement? Should, what's the price differential going to be? You know, does a producer need to consider, you know, where, where Prosecco Superiore should be compared to Prosecco DOC? And that's what really came out of this. It came out of this that producers needed to think a little bit more carefully about, you know, that, 
you know, where the higher priced product is more effective in really the on trades, the independent side. And then if you go into the off trade side, which is a supermarket side that, you know, you really are, are you really going to achieve what you want to achieve from a reputational point of view, from a price point of view, when you are competing with a, a you know, a lower, a, a dock product. So it was, it was, it was quite interesting to, to, to look at it. And I did a, a little bit of comparison and the final analysis between things like Chianti and Chianti Classico, which is exactly the same thing. You know, they both appear on the same shelves. What is the price differential? What is the impact? You know, how do, how do, I didn't, this had nothing to do with consumers, but how does the trade, you know, what does the trade think of them? What, how is the trade going to, going to be impacted and placed? Um, and, and it is interesting considering, you know, not not too far along late. I mean, the, the craze is still happening, isn't it? It's still, you know, it's still a highly, highly, highly successful product. So, um, so it was it was really fascinating. It was fascinating to do. The people were lovely that I worked with. I spent a lot of time in both Colliano and Valdebiadne, um, and it was really fascinating. And and I still do a little bit with Prosecco Superiore now. Um, um, doing that, so it was uh, yeah, it was a really really interesting project to take on. Is that work you literally being in the region, speaking face to face with people, or is that distance um, working with Prosecco Superiore now? Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah, I've taken um, so uh, I have sort of um, sort of spearheaded some uh, a trip or two out there. We were going to do another trip, um, which I would love to do, but it's going to be a virtual trip now and. Um, um, uh, in, in, in November. So it's a little bit like that. I've done a little, a few little presentations for them at some of the trade shows. Um, I've done sort of tastings for them with different students. So it, it's, so it's, so it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of both, you know, getting some names together to people come over and sort of see the region. As you know, it's quite impactful when you, you know, when you get to Cartizia and you get to some of these Rives and in, in the region that, you know, you can you can really make sort of buyers understand and taste the differences between them. And not that Prosecco Doc isn't a great product. It's a fantastic product. You know, I drink it too. But it is, you know, it, it, it is people physically understanding the difference of the regions and the difference in taste and, and the region why, why it's higher priced. So, I mean, you, you obviously judge a lot of um, wine competitions such as uh, the Decanter World Wine Awards and uh, Five Star Wines, which is organised by Vinitaly. What are your, some of your bugbears about wine tasting, and what are, what are the what are the things that um, make you excited about blind tasting competitions? My bugbear, probably my biggest bug, and we missed you by the way in Decanter this year. I did do Tuscany, Monty. We did miss you tasting Tuscany this year. Probably, I think. I think the one thing. I'm not quite sure whether how you feel about this ways, you know, you, you get some people that are a little bit nervous and sort of, you know, sit within one, uh, one sort of mark, you know, they may go a down, down to may go a little bit up to, but they just kind of sort of sit in the middle. And I, you know, I, I really like to use the scale. I, I like to use the scale. I like to think that there is, you know, there's legitimately some wines that sort of sit in the middle, but I like to use it to the higher scale if it's there and the lower scale, if it's there, um, so I'm, I, I quite get a little bit, a little bit irritated at people sitting on the fence, maybe a little bit, um, that I'd like to see more, you know, more use of, of the marks that we have. I think that's, that's one of the things. It's amazing how many people are still quite scared of, you know, giving a low mark or giving a really high mark. Yeah, exactly. Of being seen that to get things wrong when it's really just your, your opinion, isn't it? I mean, that's what it yeah. is. And, uh, yeah, no, I, exactly. Um, 
What about um, what, what consulting projects have you got on at the moment relating um, not just to Italy, but in Italy and elsewhere? Um, so I've got a corporate client that I'm doing um, uh, a little bit. I'm, well, normally I'd be there with them, but I'm doing um, some virtual training with them. They're bringing out a new product uh, and a that sparkling wine product, actually. So I'm, I'm doing a I'm, um, consulting with them, putting together a package with them and then uh selected wines obviously very different people will be at their homes so doing more of a, a virtual experience with them so i'm doing that right now i'm doing a presentation for all the psalms in south america that's coming up um that'll be a live i think a live zoom and recorded uh, and that's going to be on wines of canada so i've got that coming up um as i said this virtual trip um to prosecco superiore so that coming up and i desperately wish we could go there but um I can't convince anybody of that yet. So I'm not quite sure being from England will be let out anywhere these days. So I don't know if you heard, but London just London London just got put on restricted lockdown this morning. So what do you, what do you, what have some? I mean, you're so, such a positive person, such a logical person with a ridiculous amount of knowledge. And what what are some of your bugbears uh, in the industry? Um, obviously, people sitting on the fen- fence in blind tastings is annoying, but it's not the the be all and end all. Um, but, you know, from a female perspective, uh, for somebody who really is at the top of the tree, both commercially and in terms of um, wine-ness, in terms of your knowledge of, uh, of the actual product, you know, for your, your master of wine and all the rest of it, what, what are the things that still you think uh, we have areas, of, areas that are still unreconstructed that we need to deal with as an industry? Great question. Uh, probably the one thing that irritates me the most is when we as wine experts, and it's a joint we, you know, criticize, you know, consumers for their love of something basic and simple. You know, I get really upset when I hear some people say to me, oh, people people don't think I'm embarrassed when I, you know, I have a glass of Pinot Grigio, but I like Pinot Grigio, or, you know, I like Prosecco, but people don't think it's posh enough, you know, or if they have a blush Zinfandel, people don't think that's posh enough. And I get really upset at that. I think we in the industry, our our business is to make sure that people enjoy wine. And if we want people to move up the scale in quality and in, and, 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 you know, encourage them to buy different styles, that's our job. That's our job in the wine industry, not to criticize them, not to make them feel like they're idiots, but to actually say, I'm happy you enjoy it. I'm happy you really, really like it. You know, why don't you try something else? You might like this equally as well. And I think that's our job in the industry to do that, as opposed to constantly criticize. I have been at pubs and I have ordered a glass of Prosecco or Pinot Grigio and my wine friends just look at me in shock and I just look at them and say why I mean that that, if that's what I want to drink today what does that matter to you that that's what I want to drink you know if people want to drink something that's really simple and lovely and juicy you know why do we criticize that so I I feel extremely passionate about that that people um, um, that, that people are made to feel that way. And I feel that with food and wine matching as well, when people says just sort of, you know, you must have this wine with this food or you must have this wine with that food. And I, I, get, I, get, I get really, really irritated by it. And that doesn't go away. It, it, it's still around today. And that gives our industry such a horrible, elitist attitude and it doesn't need to be that way you know we're an industry that overproduces you know anywhere between what 
20 and 40 million hectoliters a year. Our job is to sell wine. That's our job to make sure people enjoy it and that people buy it, you know, and they discover more wine. It is not to criticize people and what they drink. So sorry, that's a little bit of a, a little bit of a rant, but that really irritates me. Yeah, I, the, the word rant and Canadian just don't go together, by the way. <laughs> Maybe I've been here too long. Yeah, I mean, um, your, your term basic and simple, um, and I'm sure that has um, that idea in your in your head has come from the fact that when you were small and your first introduction to wine was probably a basic and simple wine, right? And and you've held that through your career, your sort of lodestar. So, um, and you've reached the top of the tree, not just being an MW, but you know, teaching MWs. I mean, that that is kind of like the sort of pinnacle. And for you to say that, you know, an everyday simple wine is just as exciting for you as, as I don't know, Petrus or whatever, or Romani Conti, um, is really, really great to hear. And um, uh, I'd love to get you back again on the podcast in the future, um, because you have a wealth of knowledge, not just about wine, but about the, the language of wine um, and the setting of wine and the thinking about wine and the expression of words related to wine. Um, you are a, a fantastic interviewee. I would absolutely love to. Michelle, I just want to say thanks very much to you. And uh, we wish you every success in all your future projects. And we look forward to seeing you literally as soon as possible. Take care. Take care. Thank you very much, Monty. Listen to the Italian Wine Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We're on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Himalaya FM and more. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production and publication costs. Until next time, cin cin.